Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 20. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 6 through 12. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul's sermon at Troas. And this is uh, still in the third missionary journey. Uh, Paul is making his way back to toward Jerusalem. But he's uh, still traveling up in the area. Uh, and he's uh, come to Troas and he's going to preach a, a sermon there. So let me begin reading. In Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 6. And as our Lord reminds us that heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will never pass away. So we're reading the eternal inspired word of God. So give careful attention to the reading of Holy Scripture. Verse 6. We, notice Luke, has now joined the Apostle Paul. He's using the first uh, person pronoun. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. So the ship journey took five days. If you look on the map, you wonder why did it take so long? Well, probably because at that time of year there was a prevailing south wind, so it just made the sailing very slow and tedious. So it took them five days to reach, to go from Philippi to Troas. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, his life is in him. And when we had gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, this just proves that sermons don't always go the way you want them to go. Our desire is certainly to help people live, not to kill people dead. But uh, there's a great deal of encouragement, I think, for anyone who has taught the Scriptures or preached the Word, that from time to time you see occasionally that closing of the eyes, the falling of the Bible on the floor, the occasional snort of someone coming out of a sleep, a snore. And yet in self-defense, we can say that it even happened to the Apostle Paul too. But at least no one dropped dead from my sermon like they did with him. So we have a funny way to justify these things in our own mind. No accidental homicide. from. My... But obviously the lesson at the outset is uh, beware of Long five-hour sermons. That's about how long this sermon was. It was probably about five hours long. 
And there's a principle that says the brain can only absorb what the seat can endure. So no super long sermons and no listening to sermons sitting on an open window ledge. That would be another principle. Well, when was uh, this church founded? Let's see, do we have... Okay, we're up. I'm not, let me see if I can reactivate this. Uh, help. Uh, go, uh, that's okay. My, I'm not having it on my iPad, but that's, um, so when was the church founded? At Troas. This is where Paul is at. And, Remember that Paul went through Troas on his second missionary journey. He was in modern day Turkey or Asia. And he couldn't go north into Bithynia. He couldn't go south into Asia. So he went straight into a dead end at Troas. And he stayed in Troas until he received the Macedonian call. You remember that uh, back in Acts chapter 16. So while he was at Troas, it's possible that this church was founded at that point in time. Uh, more than likely, he's, uh, he founded it when he left Ephesus and went up at Troas. And this is what we find in 2 Corinthians 2. I think that should be the next slide. He says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door opened for me in the, in the Lord... I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So when he leaves Ephesus, in the third missionary journey, remember he was there for about three years that we've studied, then he moves up to Troas, and notice that a door was open. Thank you, Timothy. A door was open for me in the Lord, which means he was preaching the Gospel. People were coming to faith in Christ. That's possibly when this church was founded. Um, so we find that uh, Paul has left Ephesus. He's gone up to Troas, an open door of ministry, but he needed to move on because he's looking for Titus to get word about Corinth, remember? And he moves up to Macedonia where Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea are. From there he writes 2 Corinthians, if you can remember what we studied last week. He spends three months in, in Corinth. He's planning on getting on a ship and sailing uh, back to Syria, but for one of the festivals, probably Passover. But there's some Jews on board, and he hears of a plot that they're going to kill him when he gets on that ship. They're going to kill him and throw him overboard and and, uh, get rid of him. So he decides instead to backtrack. So he goes back up through Macedonia, Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, and now he comes down to Troas and that church has already been established. So now he's there for another time. He's on his way back ultimately to, uh, to land in Jerusalem. Come, come to Jerusalem. So what do we find out here? We find in verse 7, well at the end of verse 6, he stays there for seven days. In verse 7, on the first day of the week, they gathered together to break bread. So now what we're seeing is that uh, the Apostle Paul and the early church met for worship on the first day of the week. That would be Sunday. So this is the day they're gathering to break bread. 
The breaking of bread probably refers to both the agape fellowship meal and the Lord's Supper, which were both taken together uh, in, uh, in the first century and afterwards. But notice that they're, that they're meeting on the first day of the week. We find that this becomes the pattern of the early church. That their day of worship was not the Jewish Sabbath, which was Saturday, but it's the first day of the week, which is Sunday. We see this reflected also in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, when Paul writes back to the church at Corinth. He says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So the first day of the week, Sunday, was the day when they would meet together. They would take up this collection to help the poor believers back in Jerusalem. So we began to see early on that the day of worship is clearly the first day of the week. That's Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday. It was uh, established by the early church. Uh, John actually refers to this day as the Lord's Day. In Revelation 1.10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Well now, what day is the Lord's Day? Well, that is clearly Sunday, the first day of the week. That's the way the early church fathers and the early church documents all interpreted the Lord's Day was Sunday. It was the first day of the week. One document, which is called the Didache, which is dated anywhere from 50 A.D. to 120 A.D., and I would be inclined to see that in that earlier range. Uh, some say... 50, 60 A.D. So this would be right when Paul is in his third missionary journey. This, this document of a church manual, if you will, the Didache was written. And it says that, and on the Lord's day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks, first confessing your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. So clearly the first day was adopted as a day of Christian worship. Uh, and that was a uh, practice, not only we see it in uh, Acts, we see it in uh, Corinthians, but we also see it in extra-biblical documents of that time. Uh, there's really not much to question about that. It's well established. So in worshiping on the first day, obviously there's a change of day from the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday. And it signals an end to the Old Covenant and the beginning of a new covenant. So the day of worship changes from Saturday to Sunday. Now what caused that change? Well, there are two main reasons. First is Christ's resurrection. Because Christ arose on the first day of the week. He arose on Sunday. And He met with His disciples on Sunday. Remember, uh, after His resurrection, early Sunday morning, He met with uh, Mary... He met with the women. He met with Peter. He met with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. And then later that evening, He met with the ten disciples. Judas wasn't there. He was dead by this time. And also Thomas was not there. But He met with them all on the first day of the week. That was Sunday. So the disciples at that point began to identify 
meeting with the Lord on the first day of the week, the resurrection day. So as the resurrection of Jesus Christ had established, that was the day when the risen Lord Jesus met with His disciples. Now, I'm not sure there was any other appearances that following week until the next Sunday when the Lord met again with His disciples. This time Thomas was included. That's on the first day of the week again. One week later, on a Sunday, one week later, and He met with them again. So they began to identify that's the day Christ meets with His people on the first day, Sunday. So that quickly became, became adopted uh, as the day of worship. And it was called the Lord's Day uh, by the Apostle John. Now the second reason why I think the first day became significant is because in their mind, the first day began to signify the beginning of a new creation. On day one of the old creation, God created the heavens and the earth. He created light. Now on one week later, if you will, on the eighth day or the first day of the next week, we have the beginning of a new creation. And I think the, the early church began to identify Sunday, the first day of the week, as the beginning of a new creation. And this was part of their celebration for worshiping on Sunday. Because it was, it was a symbolic of not the old creation, but the new creation. Now look how the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4-6 begins to link these two ideas together. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did God say, let there be light? Day one. The first day of the old creation. Let there be light. Okay? Notice what Paul goes on to say. The God who said, let there be light, created light in the midst of darkness on day one of creation week, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the first day celebrates the light of the Gospel, the light of the New Covenant, the light of Christ shining in our hearts. And He links it with that new creation that we are in Jesus Christ. So Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So that the church now is identified with being a part of the new creation, not the old creation. And the new creation is identified as a new spiritual work of creation on day one. Just as Paul links it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 6. Interesting. So, what we have is that in the early church, the Jewish Christians probably continued to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, Saturday, and, and be a part of the synagogue worship there, and then meet again on Monday with the church to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, the fact that they're a new creation, the first day of the week signifying this is a new, a new creation different from the old creation. So the Jewish believers probably, at least initially, met on Saturday, the Sabbath day for Jews, to worship in the synagogue until they probably got kicked out at some point as Paul got kicked out. But then their main day would be Sunday, the first day of the week, where they would worship Christ, celebrate His resurrection, 
celebrate that they're a new creation in Christ. Uh, symbolized by the day one of creation that Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians 4. So the first thing we see in uh, Acts 20 verse 7 is they met on the first day of the week and they were gathering together to break uh, bread. The second thing we see in here is that they met in a home in an upper chamber and as we see later on, that Eutychus fell out of a third floor window. So they're probably in a home. Most of these upper chambers where they would eat meals together would be in someone's private home. And this was probably a more affluent believer. He had a three floors, so they were up on the third floor. And, um, and so this is where they're worshiping on the first day of the week. The Gentile believers who had no roots back in the Sabbath, uh, unless they were proselytes, would have only met on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Uh, they would not have met with the Jewish believers who may have continued on worshiping on the Sabbath. But they were meeting in homes. And what this tells us is that they didn't meet in a temple, they didn't meet in a synagogue or a chapel or a church building, just someone's home. So these were the house churches that we read about in the New Testament. In other words, you don't need stained glass or padded pews or fancy cathedrals to worship God. You can worship God anywhere. You can worship in a home. So that's what they were doing. They were worshiping in one of the believers' home. The third thing we learn about this is that they were meeting in the evening. Now we get this from, uh, if you look at verse 7, at the end of it, Paul prolonged his message until midnight. And uh, everyone that I've read on this all say that this was an evening meeting. It wasn't a morning meeting because that means that Paul started preaching late morning and preached all the way till midnight, like 13 hours. Most everybody say, no, there are reasons. This is an evening meeting. And he probably started his ministry maybe at 7 or whatever and he's preaching till midnight, so that's like a five-hour-long uh, message and time of instruction. Uh, this is also confirmed in Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20 and 21, when he says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So the meeting, the agape meal, was a supper. And that word in Greek refers to the evening meal. Okay? And even the Lord's Supper that the Lord inaugurated was an evening meal when they celebrated the Passover, remember? But it was an evening meal. So this was an evening meeting. They were meeting in the evening. And I think that's uh, very significant because you ask the reason, well, why do they meet in the evening? And the answer is because they were all working during the day. That Sunday, for the first day of the week, for everybody, Jews and Gentiles, was a typical normal work day. Uh, they worked during the day, so the only time they had to meet was on Sunday evening. Uh, within the Greco-Roman society, 
they had no weekly day of rest. They had no day off. Um, matter of fact, um, Seneca, a Roman Stoic philosopher who was alive at this time, would scoff at the Jews as wasting time on their Sabbath because they were not working. Because within the Roman, the Greco-Roman culture, they worked every day. They did not have a weekly day off like the Jews did. So Sunday, the first day of the week, was a normal work day for everybody, Jews and Greeks. So they worked on Sunday, so therefore they had to meet Sunday evening for worship. Now the Greeks and the Romans had their special celebrations to their gods and their civic things, but they did not have a weekly day of rest. So again, this is a work day. It's interesting, early in the second century, there was a letter from Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman governor of Bithynia. So this is not, this is pretty close to where Troas is. And he's writing a letter to Trajan, who was the emperor of Rome at that time. And people have been complaining to him about the Christians. So in his letter, he talks about how these Christians have been meeting before dawn, early, early in the morning. And then they would break up because they'd have to work all day. And then they would meet again Sunday evening. But they still worked all day on Sunday. And it's interesting in this letter that Pliny, the Roman governor, is writing to Trajan, the emperor, he makes reference to the Christians meeting before sunrise. And then they would adjourn and then meet again in the evening. Why? Because they work. It was a typical work day. Now, there's lots of different opinions today within our church on the Sabbath and is Sunday the Christian Sabbath. And these are wonderful issues to, to kick around. But what we see in the book of Acts is that Sunday was not a Sabbath in their mind, because they worked on that day. And I think it's, it's something that we uh, have to at least make the observation uh, of that going on. Uh, in fact, one of the church histories that I've been looking at says that the notion that Sunday has taken the place of the Sabbath is notably absent from early Christian literature. For the first three centuries of the church, there was no expectation that on the Lord's Day, one is to rest from one's labors. And the first mention of Sunday rest was officially issued by Constantine in 321 A.D. Remember, Constantine converted to Christianity. At that point, he declared Sunday a rest day. But up until that time, it wasn't. Now, it may have been, you might have had the beginnings of this developing within the church, but Officially, for Sunday to be reckoned a day of rest, it was quite late. It was the fourth century in Constantine. Though some of these things could have developed, you know, earlier on, and then eventually, after he was converted, he made that uh, he made that application. But uh, again, what I think we can, and by the way, I thank God that we can rest on Sunday. Um, but what I'm trying to do is to make a distinction between what we see in the text of Scripture and what developed later on in church history. Once Constantine officially called Sunday a day of rest, then you begin to see a greater development and emphasis of Sabbath keeping identified with Sunday. 
So this began to develop through the Middle Ages, and then when we come to the Puritans, well then, they kind of codify and develop a more rigorous form of Sabbatarianism, which is reflected in some of our Reformed creeds. But early on, the early church, Sunday was a work day. That's why they met in the evenings, and that's the point that I'm trying to, to establish. The idea that, that came in uh, with, the, uh, the, with the notion of rest for the early church was not so much a rest from physical work, i.e. the Jewish Sabbath, but a spiritual resting in Jesus Christ and His finished work to accomplish all that was needed for my salvation. I no longer have to pursue the dead works of my righteousness trying to earn myself. We rest in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. He's talking about rest for your soul. And when you read Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews chapter 4 links the Sabbath day rest of creation week not with physical rest in the church, which is a blessing. I'm very glad we're able to do that. Don't misunderstand me. But not with that, but with the spiritual rest that every believer has in Christ that we enjoy every single day of the week and we will enjoy it throughout all eternity in heaven with God. That is that rest that we have. And the physical Sabbath was a type of the spiritual rest that Jesus Christ fulfills. That's why in Colossians 2, Paul says that the Sabbath was a shadow of good things to come fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, eventually, the idea of the physical rest, the Sabbath idea associated with the Lord's Day began to take root uh, after Constantine. And it began to grow, as I said earlier, through the Middle Ages. And then our Puritan fathers uh, began to ratify that more tightly and uh, turning Sunday into the Christian Sabbath, a day of physical rest as well as Spiritual rest in Christ. Now, I, again, don't misunderstand me. I, I thank God that Sunday is a day of rest for us. And I thank God that uh, uh, we normally still respect that within our own country to a degree. And, uh, but, but the main emphasis in the New Testament on Sunday was not physical rest, but spiritual resting in Christ. If you rest all day on Sunday, but you never glory in and rejoice in the spiritual rest that we have in Christ Jesus, then you're not really living up to what this day is all about. We are a new creation in Christ. And so that the church is identified with the new creation more than the old creation. Like the old covenant Israel was identified with the old creation. And as God rested on the seventh day, they had to rest on the seventh day. But the day of worship for us is the first day, which launches the, the new creation. So we are tied in to that in Christ Jesus. In His resurrection, we have been raised up. And where are we now? We are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2. Our citizenship is in heaven. Not on earth. It's in heaven. Philippians 3. 
We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're a part of a new covenant. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. So all of this speaks to the rest that we enjoy in Christ. So the Hebrews 4, I think, is an essentially important uh, passage. But again, I thank God that we're here on the Lord's Day Sunday and we can rest. It's a day given to us to come and meet and worship and to uh, worship Christ not just in the morning, but throughout the day. It's a wonderful opportunity. There are differing opinions, obviously, on the Sabbatarian issue, and I think we are wise to heed the exhortation of the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 not to judge one another. For some who elevate one day over another, and others see every day alike, not to pass judgment upon others who may differ. Again, thank God that we can rest on this particular day. Again, my main point is what we see in Acts is different and we need to at least distinguish between the pattern in Acts and what later developed in church history and appreciate uh, the difference. So that's, uh, that's something I wanted to point out. So the church also broke bread after the ministry of the Word you look at verse 7 again, Paul prolonged his message until midnight. And after the lamps were burning in the upper room, they were gathered together, Eutychus falls asleep, he falls out, he falls down dead, verse 9, he's picked up, they go back upstairs, this is now after midnight, in verse 11, And that's probably when they actually had their meal. It was delayed because of Paul's lengthy sermon. So they go back upstairs and they break the bread, verse 11, and then they talk for the rest of the night until daybreak. And then they leave. But notice there was a sermon before the supper. There was a Word of God before they celebrated the agape meal, and partook of the Lord's Supper together. Um, and I think what this speaks to on the first day of the week is that they there was this corporate worship of God that occurred. That certainly is established here. Sunday, first day of the week, ministry of the Word of God, breaking of bread. And they obviously sang and prayed and did all the other aspects of Christian worship. Uh, Luke just doesn't Uh, take the trouble to list everything that they did. But we certainly see here the primacy of the ministry of the Word of God in the early church. When they gathered together, Paul preached a long sermon. Okay, And then later, they shared in the fellowship meal and partook of the Lord's Supper in their worship of God. But the primacy of the ministry of the Word of God, that's what drew them together on the first day. As a new creation in Christ, celebrating the resurrection of Christ and all that means for us in the new covenant as a new creation, looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, whose citizenship is in heaven, who are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. All of that is being celebrated and it's being brought to their minds through the ministry of the Word of God. That was paramount. It wasn't entertainment. It wasn't just a whole long list of testimonies or emotionalism. It was the ministry of the Word of God. 
And the Apostle Paul had a lot to teach and a lot to say. So that's why he went on for at least till midnight. So we pick it up back in verse 7. He uh, prolongs his message until midnight. It probably wasn't a lecture for five hours or however long whenever they met. Uh, the words that are used here suggest possibly a discourse, some Q&A, some discussion, and then other teaching. So it was probably some give and take through that, that whole time period. But again, uh, as I said earlier, uh, sermons sometimes have the opposite effect that you want them to have on the people that you're ministering to. So Eutychus, in verse 9, he's a young man. His name is Eutychus, which means fortunate. He's a young man. This particular word can refer to any kid from age 8 to 14 years old, somewhere in there, give or take a year or two. And maybe the upper room was pretty crowded with people. So he finds a seat near an open window and he goes and he sits down. Now, if um, the word application should not be there yet. Uh, but notice this is a building, this is a home from an ancient town called Ostia. It's, uh, it's the port city of Rome, so it's in Italy. Now, this is a different location. But this is a, as a, an ancient, would be exactly like what you'd find in the first century of a private home. Now, notice there's a window up. This is only on the second story. So Eutychus is up on a third story window. But just imagine an open window like that. And here's a kid sitting up in there. And he's listening to the Apostle Paul. It's the fifth hour of a message. And you thought I went long. So Paul's going on for like five hours now. And then we read in verse 8 that there's many lamps that are lit because it's in the evening. It's dark outside. Many lamps. And they're putting off heat. And they're consuming oxygen. And we've actually tried to vent in some outside air into this room just to try to help you not to fall asleep uh, in our own messages. But it was also late in the evening. It's midnight. And this kid may have worked all day. Uh, so it's understandable that he is weary. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? So again, most preachers have experienced this. I've certainly experienced this on many occasions of someone dozing during uh, a message. They come to church tired. Uh, the message maybe lacks passion. Maybe it gets too long. Uh, maybe we're too unclear. It's hard to follow. Uh, no amens, please. And uh, you're just listening to it and it's going over your head and you're wondering what in the world is he saying? And then uh, heads begin to, well, eyelids begin to sag and heads begin to nod. Bibles begin to fall. Brains begin to shut down and go offline. Just like, it, you know, if you're sitting in front of your computer and you're not plugged in on my laptop what happens after about two minutes it goes into sleep mode i think a lot of people it's easy you know when you're not engaged 
you began to get distracted and then you kind of eventually had this temptation to go into sleep mode. Maybe it was very warm in that room. And people, I can understand, you know, people come to church are on medications which make them drowsy and it's too warm in the room. All these other factors, I understand that. I can, I can certainly identify. Matter of fact, I had a friend who's in the ministry, used to be in the ministry. He was a preacher who actually put himself to sleep in the midst of one of his sermons. Now this is true. He's from the South. He's from Florida. He's a guy who would speak really slow. And he worked late at night and he would come to church and sometimes he'd be just dead dog tired and yet he has to preach. So he was up there one day and he's already tired and he's trying to think of a word. And so he closes his eyes momentarily to think of this word. And then he wakes up and he begins to realize, I just dozed off. I just put myself to sleep. And his eyes are still closed and he's wondering, golly, I'm afraid to open my eyes because they might all be looking at me because I don't know how long I've been asleep. Has it been a moment or five minutes or whatever? And he actually put, so it can happen. So if we can put ourselves to sleep, we understand what we can do to you at times. But anyway, Eutychus fell asleep. He was overcome by sleep. He fell out of this third floor window. And look at the end of verse 9. He fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Now, who's writing the book of Acts? What's his name? Luke. Who is Luke? He was a he was a physician. So if Dr. Luke says he was dead, he was dead. Uh, this is not uh it's not anything like Miracle Max and Princess Bride referring to Wesley as being only mostly dead, because mostly dead is still slightly alive. Eutychus was not mostly dead or slightly he was fully dead. So what we see now is this incredible resurrection take place in verse 10. So Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. Now this is where some people say, well, he didn't actually die. Paul goes down examining him and says, no, he's alive. He's okay. No. Paul says he was picked up dead in verse 9. So when Paul comes down, we find the grace of God bringing about this incredible resurrection. So notice what Paul does in verse 10. He goes down. He, he went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, then he said, don't be troubled. His life is in. Now what does that remind you of? Anything in the Old Testament? Both Elijah and Elisha Both resurrected children from the dead. And how did they do it? Well, Elijah stretched himself out upon the child three times. And he came to life. And Elisha went down and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and eyes on his eyes and hands on his hands and stretched himself out on him. And the kid's flesh became warm. He came to life again. And Paul is doing something very similar. And I think Luke is writing this and pointing that out 
Because he knows that in certain cities like Corinth, there are people that are undermining Paul's apostolic authority, right? We see it in Corinth. I mean, my goodness, that Second Corinthians is a defense of Paul's uh, apostolic authority. So what Luke is doing in part, I think, is to show, number one, the reality of Jesus' presence with His people when they come together and meet. Miracle occurred. But also to show that Paul is on the same level with Peter. So earlier in the book of Acts, Peter raised Tabitha or Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9 at Lydda. And now Paul is raising up Eutychus from the dead here in Troas. And I think what Luke's intention here is to try to indicate that what we find is the Apostle Paul is a bona fide apostle. Miracle signs go through him or even the resurrection from the dead. There's only five resurrections in the New Testament. Three of them are done by Christ. One by Peter, one by Paul. So very, very unusual. Very, very rare. But it certainly shows that God's hand is upon him. So there may be some apologetic reasons for Luke including this uh, in his book. Well now by way of application, um, how can you avoid the embarrassment of needing to be resuscitated after a church service? Well, Let me give you uh, some quick suggestions as we begin to wrap up. Four words, each starting with the letter S. The first is sleep. Sleep before, not during the service. So in other words, go to bed at a decent time. If you have a struggle staying awake uh, during the worship service, make sure you're going to bed early enough on Saturday evening. Don't stay up playing video games all night. So get your sleep. Secondly, single-mindedness. When you come and we gather together to worship the Lord, that's why we come together to worship the Lord. Now you may be tired uh, when you come. So you've got to work on being single-minded. That is to concentrate and fight to stay focused on what we're doing when we come together to worship Christ. In other words, that when we sing a hymn, and I struggle with this too, when we sing a hymn, we've got to be single-minded and focused on taking those words and singing it to the Lord. Not just singing out the words and trying to follow the tune, but to engage in worship, to be single-minded. And all that we're doing is to worship and praise God when we sing. When we pray, don't just listen to them praying, but to pray along with them. Be single-minded. Be engaged so that you're actually participating rather than just being in the audience. So focus when they pray to, to pray along and, and echo their words in their heart, in your heart as you pray and offer those same uh, prayers to the Lord. And when you listen to the Word of God, listen so that it might search you and convict you and encourage you and bless you. Be single-minded in, in receiving the Word of God. And yes, our minds wander. Yes, they stray. But we need to focus on being single-minded for why we are gathered together here on Sunday mornings. 
The third letter, uh, S, is sacred. That when we're under the ministry of the Word, realize what you are being taught. Hopefully we're being accurate. But this is the Word of God. This is the sacred Word of God. This is Holy Scripture given to us by God for our blessing, our edification, our benefit, for all that we need in the Christian life. To understand that we have come to hear the sacred gift of God's Holy Word. And let that that concept of Scripture encourage you to fight, to stay awake, to listen. Because we're not listening to just the words of men. Yeah, there's a lot of my babblings in there as well, but it's the Word of God that we're trying to communicate. And that's what's inspired. So listen with respect because it's God's Word that we're here to, to worship. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, another seminary student and I were at church on Sunday morning and we were at that point where they're reading Scripture. And I was sitting next to my buddy, my fellow seminary student. We had our Bibles open. And I'm just following along, just reading my Bible. And he's there with his pen. And while he's reading, he's underlining every every line. And I looked over at his Bible, and on both pages, every every line of Scripture was underlined. And in the middle of it, he stopped and he looked up at me with a big grin and he says, isn't this great? And that just reflected a love for Scripture. A sense of the sacredness of the Word of God that, you know, in my Bible, I have some things underlined. He underlined everything. I mean, it was all precious. It was a blessing to him. So when we, when we come to church, we realize we're coming together under the primacy of the ministry of the Word of God. And that's what we saw uh, certainly at, uh, at Troas. And though the flesh is weak, I think we can help ourselves by reminding ourselves just the, the glorious inspired nature of the Word of God. There is no book like this. And then the fourth letter S, if you're still struggling after these three things, then my fourth one is the letter S is the word Starbucks. (laughs) Just bring your caffeine and if you have to mainline it, I mean, you know, we have to do what we have to do, you know, to stay awake. But I mean, the Word of God is worth it. So if you got to bring your coffee or whatever... But let me tell you, it worse than falling asleep physically. It is worse if you come to church and worship and you're asleep spiritually. It's one thing to be able to stay awake. It's another thing to be awake with your eyes open, but the eyes of your heart and the eyes of your soul are closed. You may be listening, but it's not penetrating. We're like the hard, dry, roadside soil of the parable. Where the Word, the seed of the Word falls on the surface and it doesn't grip. It doesn't penetrate. And the birds swoop down and gobble it up and take it away. That is my greatest fear. I can handle people falling asleep physically. It happens. But when people are asleep spiritually, that's a far more serious malady. 
This is maybe what you could call a contemporary view of soul sleep, which I think occurs in a lot of church services today. They're awake in body, but sound asleep in spirit. They hear the Word, but they do not respond to the Word. They hear the Word, but they're not doers of the Word. And that's why Paul had to write to the church at Ephesus. And in chapter 5, he had to say to the church, Awake, sleeper! And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, you who are asleep. Arise from the dead. And Christ's glory will shine upon you. So when you come to church, Sunday school, worship service, don't just come to listen in, but come to live it out. Don't just come in a trance, but come to be transformed. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which implies listening to the Word to be changed. Oh God, I'm going to church this morning. We'll be meeting in an hour. And Lord, when I'm sitting under the ministry of the Word of God, oh Lord, change me. Transform me. And that's when you're listening and you're awake. Physically, and you're awake spiritually. And for this to take place, Beloved, we need the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to help us, to revive us, to energize us, to teach us, to transform us. And that He will do as we draw near to God desiring to live a life that pleases Him. So may God help us not to be like a Eutychus physically or spiritually, but to profit under the ministry of the Word. Well, let's close in prayer. Oh God, as we have read this story about Eutychus' father, we, we all probably can identify for the weariness sometimes that we experience just the lack of response, the dullness of our own heart and soul, the spiritual comatose that we sometimes experience to our shame. But Lord, we thank You that by the power of Your Spirit, we can become more responsive and more awake and alive to the ministry of Scripture. And we pray, dear Lord, that You would bless this church with ears that hear that we might come and not just be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. That we might come to be changed by the power of the Spirit through the inspired Holy Word that You've given to us. May we come to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. So Lord, in our own weakness, in our own difficulties that we have, we look to You. and We look to the grace and power of Your Spirit to make that a reality in our lives that we might worship You in spirit and in truth for the glory of Your name. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.